If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Uh, today, we have a good guest for you. His name is Frank Holland. For the last seven months, as of this recording, he has been the CEO of Aptos, which we'll hear more about. Before that, he had a long and accomplished tenure at Microsoft, where he was a corporate VP. He holds a BS in operations research and industrial engineering from Cornell. Welcome to the show, Frank. Hey, it's great to be on. Thanks a lot, Byron. I always like to start off by just putting up signposts. What is intelligence? Or, or if you don't like that, what is artificial about artificial intelligence? <laughs> yeah, that, is, that is exploring the uh, esoteric, isn't it? You know, I think that um, you could safely define intelligence as the ability to reason. Um, and what makes it so different from, different from any other kind of rule-based uh, algorithms is that, uh, or, or apply logic to certain scenarios, is that you're able to um, not only work your way through a problem in an organized way, but do it in, um, with, with broad pattern matching and the ability to recognize trending as you do it, which makes it so tenuous to be able to grapple with to, um, when, you, when you want to apply it to any sort of a you know, compute type of environment. Um, you know, that's, that's where I think that, uh, you know, sort of the state of the art is right now as people make the transition from the philosophical question, what is intelligence, to the idea of turning it into something that's broadly scalable. I'm, I'm with you on that, but I guess I always like to ask the question because I'm really wondering, is AI mimicking intelligence? Is it feigning intelligence the way like artificial turf isn't really grass, just trying to look like grass? Or, or do you <laughs> yeah. actually think it's intelligent? And I, I don't actually have a horse in this race. I don't have a strong, I don't have an, I don't even have a weak opinion for that matter. But I'm kind of curious, because to me, it, it speaks to what are the limits of these systems we're building? Are they actually smart? Or are we just figuring out a kludgy way to imitate intelligence? And it's going to kind of cap out pretty quickly. Well, I certainly think it started there. You know, the idea that you could build um, rule engines that could uh, take logical uh, trees and break them down into sequential processing parameters is something that we've been doing. Man, I remember working on those my early days, even before um, I think the term artificial intelligence got coined. Um, and what we were working with was really just, uh, you know, the early, very early vestiges of machine learning. Um, so is it is it synthetic? Yeah, I think it is to a degree. I mean, it almost has to be to be able to to put it into an environment where you can uh, reliably repeat it using the sorts of instructions we give to a compute platform. the The notion, though, that you can take neural nets and and apply it to and you know other other sister technologies around that and apply it to um, you know hard thorny problems where we may not even know how to ask the question could be the beginnings of what, what it makes it truly intelligent. And I think that where the human um, where the human isn't able to keep up, not just in terms of scale, I mean, that's an easy one to understand, but in terms of 
knowing how to approach a problem or, like I said, knowing what question to ask is where you could start to see some real intelligence coming out of what sorts of compute problems we're throwing at the world right now. So, you know, we have figured out this trick, and I don't mean that term pejoratively, like a, like a magic trick. You know, we figured out this trick um, of machine learning, and it's a pretty simple idea. It says, you know, take a bunch of data about the past and study it and look for patterns and make projections into the future about that. And, and, and so you can imagine there's a range of problems that's really good for, like, um, well, it's good when the past and the future are very similar. Like, what does a cat mm-hmm. look like? You know, it's not that, that different from day to day. Do you believe that, like... Probably, probably you, won't change overnight. You're right. No, but something <laughs> like a cell phone might, you know? Yeah, um, true. So my, my question to you is that when you think, and we're going to get to your company and, and, and the challenges of kind of simulated speech, but before we get there, like, do you think the Turing test kind of problem where you can ask the computer a question and it can answer it in a compelling way, does that actually behave that way? Can you, if you had an infinitely large corpus of, you know, writing, uh, could you predict the next thing I'm going to say? I don't know that uh, with the, the state of the technology is at a point where it could do that. Um, the human mind is so complex that you're, you're, the, word, the next words out of your mouth um, are probably not even known by you, depending on a whole variety of variables that you can't Rutabaga. incorporate. Who yeah, saw that right, coming, exactly. right? <laughs> I bet you didn't even a second ago. No, right? no, I was like, what is the word I'm least expecting? I don't even yeah, know what a rutabaga right. is, quite frankly, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, uh, anyway, tell me, that, so what, what, what can a computer do along those lines? Like, what are the boundaries of, like, well, we can do that kind of now. It, it feels like where we are today in terms of practical applications, and that's what I'm all about. You know, I don't, I don't want to get into, because uh, I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a, um, uh, you know, a, I don't hold any kind of credentials in the computer science area. So I wouldn't be a good one to ask, what does technology afford you to do? I only think about the practical applications of what other people have built and where we're able to move that um, into, you know, sort of the broad B2B context. The, the, the sorts of things, though, that you're able to do in a meaningful, scaled way in the environment today uh, where we tend to need, you know, an assistant or some sort of a, an intelligent agent to help us out are the trivial or the ones that require a bunch of data, data crunching. You know, the kinds of problems I like to solve with AI these days are ones that, um, you know, you could, you could repurpose a human way better if you were to take X, Y, and Z off their hands. And by doing that, you free up time to have them be operated at a much more high strategic, you know, uh, better operating level than you would if you were to ask them to, 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 to do those sorts of, um, you know, non, non-real high value add type problems. So I think those are the sorts of things where we see real opportunity in today's world. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm only going to ask you one more question along these kind of like philosophic lines. And then I'd love to hear the practical solutions, you know, you guys are working on, but in fact, I'm going to ask you a segue question, which is this. Um, I wrote an article 
so I have on my desk, I, I can't say them because it's right by me, the, 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 the Amazon device and the Google device. You know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right? And yep. um, I wrote an article that was, I would ask them questions, very straight, straightforward questions, and they would give me different answers. So question one would be, how many minutes are in a year? That would seem to be a very knowable thing. And then the second one was... It seems like there's only one answer. Correct. The second one was, who designed the American flag? Again, it's just a matter of fact. And the third one was, um, who's burying Grant's tomb? That was one of them. They, they, and I I mean, I, I had 20 of these questions where they gave me different answers to these questions. So for the first one, how many minutes are in a year? One multiplied 365 days by the number of minutes, and one multiplied 365.24 days, a solar year, not a calendar year. Mm-hmm. Gave me an answer. With the flag, one said Betsy Ross, and one said Robert Hecht. And I was like, who's that? And Robert Hecht's the guy that designed the 50-star configuration. And then the third one is a little bit of a trick question because nobody's buried in the tomb. You entomb people in tombs. You don't bury them. And one of them got it. One of them didn't. <laughs> so, in, but in, in at least the first two questions, the system didn't have the, the wherewithal to say, well, did you mean a calendar year or a or solar year? Or mm-hmm. do you mean the current flag or the original flag? And and that's why these systems always seem very brittle to me. So is that a struggle? Tell me about Aptus. Go ahead and, and bring everybody up to speed on, on Aptus and what you're trying to do there. And then is that a challenge you guys wrestle with? That, that inherent ambiguity that a human can be like, well, wait a minute. Do you mean versus a computer, which, like you said at the very beginning, kind of goes down a path and gives you an answer? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a, a really good segue question. Um, Byron, and the 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 reason, um, as you point out, that you get different answers is because I think probably on one level you want real precision, and and a computer is only precise as the as the uh, person who built it, um, or an app is only as good at determining the right kind of an answer as the individual that designed it, and you know as a result, you could also factor in well, what do most people mean when they ask how many minutes are in a year? I bet very few people would say, well, I'm in a solar year, of course. So do you really even have to ask the the clarifying question? Or can you just make an assumption around what the broad populace is talking about? Do you really mean that, um, you know, do you draw a distinction between bearing and and, and tombing? Probably with that question, because it's meant to be a trick one. But, uh, you know, at Aptis, what we try to do are identify specific scenarios, practical scenarios, where you can get the kind of scale and leverage um, in the middle office space that I alluded to a little bit earlier. So we build what we call uh, quote-to-cash software. It manages this um, ecosystem between CRM systems and ERP systems that neither does really well, and you have to build real fit-for-purpose type applications to uh, adroitly handle the use case. Uh, so um, being able to build a large uh, shopping cart in a B2B environment with very complex products. Most big enterprises, who are the ones that we tend to do our business with, Fortune 1000, et cetera, are, are looking to build efficiencies into their, um, 
their demand chain by taking advantage of e-commerce capabilities, even though it's thought to be just more, I guess, today, a, a, beta, a beta C type application. But as you get into those sorts of scenarios, you want to be able to offer people the ability to, oh, I don't know, take a, um, a sales contract from uh, a, uh, someone that is a rep out in the field and be able to address terms changes with a customer on the fly so that you get not only a good deal in place that's got um, you know, good price around it, good, good uh, delivery dates around it, uh, ones that you think you can live up to, et cetera, but also is de-risked from a legal uh, application perspective. And what we try to do is to build a database of those terms that are the most highly regarded by the legal team and then give them as suggestions to uh, the sales reps so that they can sort of seamlessly integrate those into a, a suggestion or an edit window with the buyer in front of them as opposed to having to wait days for the turnaround and redline uh, process to happen. That's one example about where we're taking the, the segue question that you asked and putting it in context. So there, there is as little opportunity for ambiguity as possible. I suppose it's probably always there. But we try to remove it uh, and abstract it at a, at a level where you are so in, embedded into the business process that you're not worried about that. I think another example could be that um, you know you're trying to leverage your salesperson so they're working on the hardest uh, and most lucrative types of uh, opportunities for a customer. And you know we've got customers who are asking us to be able to take the best and brightest salespeople and their ideas about how they might configure a deal. Uh, and put it in the hands of their least experienced and newest reps so that they can benefit from the years and years of uh, cycles that the veterans had to compile their knowledge, their vast knowledge base, and um, offload some of that learning uh, into the compute environment so that a new rep can get up, up and ramp as quickly as possible. Those are the sorts of scenarios I'm seeing our customers adapt to. And you know, the way we solve or address, I guess, the problems you talked about with the, um, you know, the flag issue or the number of days in a year um, kind of gets uh, compartmentalized in a way that because it is in context, you, you remove some of that um, error, error margin or uh, maybe comprehension margin that you might encounter otherwise. Yeah, it's absolutely true that the narrower your domain space, the better the systems are. Like if it was just about, you know, minutes and different things, it would have, if it were a vertical application, you know, it would have picked that up. So, you know, kind of the way you're describing at this, it sounds very abstract. Can you give me um, like some real use cases of like sure. yeah. problem here, solution here? And so forth? You bet. Yeah. So uh, one of our customers is using our Max product, which is our AI product. We've, we've given it a name. Um, we market it separately, et cetera. And what they've done is really interesting in the sense that they've gone out and said to um, their reps, look, we've got the opportunity to go and consolidate an entire market, but we're doing it using, um, you know, uh, contract language and um, uh, an approval cycle uh, that has us being um, sort of subject to these really long cycle times and being able to generate a quote. And our, our current, and when I, when I say quote, I, 
that's probably a well-known term, but I'll define it anyway. I mean a proposal to purchase one's products, um, you know, to a buyer and then a you know proposal to sell from a seller. The idea that you'd be able to take, um, uh, in, in this particular instance that I'm thinking about, it happens to be medical technology equipment that's very customized and yet has enough of a uh, pattern to it that you can actually create trend around what sort of discounts lead to rapid uptake because it understands what the um, you know kind of general price points are on the market for this kind of competitive technology. And yet it also is an attractive enough type of a deal for the purchasers so that they'd be likely to sign you know, on the dotted line that day and, and net you a nice little revenue uptick. Um, and they found, and I'm not able to disclose either the customer's name or the uh, amount of benefits that they've got just because they see it as this is a real competitive advantage right now uh, versus their com- versus their competitive space that they operate within. But they've found, you know, uh, double to triple digit improvement in their ability to generate not only quick deal signings, but also uh, high margin type take up of this sort of a policy where they've seen, you know, sort of best in class done before, and then they've been able to repeat it at scale. So that's just one example of where we're seeing yeah, people take I, up our technology. I'm with you on that. And, and believe me, we at GigaOM here, we are, we're severely limited in the number of use cases about AI we, we can write about because so many people do see it as a competitive advantage. But let's just take that one where you say, mm-hmm. hey, there's this sales process and there are people who do it very well and there are people who don't do it well. And what we're going to do is study programmatically the people that do it very well and apply that learning to everybody. Is that fair? Is that, did I get that right? That's right. Yeah, uh, that's right. So put some legs on that. Give me a, like, what are the steps in that? Uh, do you take just all the proposals the superstar did and, like, how do you, like, flesh that out? Because that's really compelling. You you use the phrase triple digits, and I can do enough math to know that's a big deal. So how does that happen? Yeah, so what we do is uh, we study uh, individual deal sets, and we know because we see all of the financial implications of any given deal uh, since we work in the quote-to-cash uh, area. So we know how, you know, what, the data that we send the ERP system, and we know how various different verticals um, customers are behaving with different proposals sent to them. And we can draw trends out of that. So we can pull, um, you know, for, for products ABC, we know that they happen to be a hot seller with these in this configuration. And then that's, that's actually where the market's headed because we see so many reps doing deals like that. We also know that we tend to drive low margin results as uh, a function of that being at so high volume that you think you can make you know, your quota number and then um, on volume and not really really worry about the implications of the bottom line. So what we've done is we've taken in good margin deals that are still attractive to those sellers and we've said, what is special about those? What actually made the buyer say yes, as opposed to I want a lower price? And it could be that we um, identified a particular term that was interesting to a customer. We'll throw that in the proposal. It could be that we identified a particular um, delivery style that they wanted to see. Uh, we could take another, uh, you know, a, a whole handful of different options that you could put around any kind of product configuration and say those were the drivers that looked unique 
in this one deal set where someone said yes versus the times where we did good volume but bad margin type deals and the customer still said yes. What was common between those things that you could take and then drive into a broad knowledge base of um, of uh, capability that a uh, new rep could learn from or an inexperienced one could get better at? And that's, you know, without going into the tech itself, that's how you um, isolate against patterns that aren't repetitive in all scenarios, but do pop up as being the differentiator and one that really did work or but a handful enough to make a trend. Fair enough. But y- y- that all makes sense to me if you had uh, a gazillion deals because, you know, AIs love to be trained on lots of data. But don't most companies are dealing in numbers like thousands of deals? I mean, do you really... How, how do you overcome kind of just the sparsity of the data set? We don't run into uh, sparsity all that often. In fact, we run into kind of the opposite where the, in our industry, the state of the art on being able to put numbers of uh, products into a shopping cart is about in the mid hundred. And right now what we're able to, we're, I mean, this is on a, on a different, um, uh, different discussion path, but by building out capability of being able to do that at 10,000 items, as opposed to 500 items, you get more shots, you get more reps, and you learn more in the way that customers behave to different types of both, you know, in this particular example that we're using, this hypothetical example, that you learn more about what customers, uh, what is appealing to them, and what tends to turn them off. And, you know, what I've found is that markets behave I mean, this is not a Frank Holland truism here. This is something that's been proven over years. But markets behave fairly efficiently. And, yeah, there are outliers, but generally they'll trend toward um, uh, optimal configuration that actually makes sense for all. So that's what we try to try to get to in the way that we build our AI solutions. So what are the, what are the challenges that you're facing right now? Like, what is it like, okay, now our next challenge is, is blank. We need to be able to something. like Yeah. What's on the right? What what's keeping you kind of scratching your head at night? Well, I mean, we haven't really, as an industry, solved this whole concept of taking online B two B and allowing for people that are in more traditional industries that aren't, you know, as a service type products and making them as a service. It's really easy to say, "Hey, I want to sell you an airplane," and by the way, I'll sell you all the maintenance along with that, and not even really charge you. For the plane itself, doing that in practice is incredibly difficult because what you're doing is establishing a set of digital SLAs that were never part of the of the uh, you know that particular plane deal that you might have struck with a commercial airline uh, in historically. So it introduces a number of new nuanced ways of having to now represent your digital product, the subscription, with the SLAs that go against it. And those, that's all the new contract language that people are having to think about contemplating as they consider, you know, moving into this as a service type economy. And you're seeing it across the board, Byron. I mean, it's happening in virtually every industry that I can think of. So that, that's what we spend a lot of time thinking about these days. Well, wonderful. So, well, see, we're coming up on time here. The company is Aptus, A-P-T-T-U-S, uh, and I, I assume people can go there to get the latest and greatest. What about you, Frank? Do you, um, how, how can people keep up with what you're doing? Do you blog or tweet or, or hire yeah, skywriters you're, you're kinda... on a frequent basis? 
I haven't taken up skywriting yet. Maybe that's a good idea. Uh, we should look into that. I'll take them out. <laughs> the, the company's name is actually, and I, I made this mistake too, Byron, when I came on board. It only has one P, so it's A-P-T-T-U-S. You can find us at aptus.com, and uh, it's actually my media day today, so I've just finished uh, taping a series of blogs that we'll publish every couple of weeks, and I'd love to invite your audience to come and uh, see a little bit more about what we're up to here at Aptus by looking at those blogs. Well, great, and I apologize for the misspelling. We'll correct that in the transcript. No, no problem. And, uh, and now that we've had a discussion about it, people are even more inclined to remember it, so... All right, thank you. I want to thank you so much for for sharing with us a little bit of the fascinating work you're doing, applying the technology of artificial intelligence to a very real set of business uh, issues. And and I wish you the best of luck. I appreciate the time, and thanks for having me on, Byron. If you enjoy this Voices in AI podcast, consider subscribing to the new Deep Dive into AI monthly report authored by Byron Reese. Each report offers exhaustive analysis of a key issue in AI. This is designed to guide and inform enterprise decision makers interested in, planning for, or already investing in AI. Visit gigaohm.com slash deep dive to try it for free.